In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash happening and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash happening. Thanks for your help. All human beings are basically morally equal, you know, that they have an underlying dignity and that that dignity needs to be respected by governments. And the way that it is respected is through a rule of law, through constitutional arrangements that put limitations on the power of the state to, you know, manipulate individuals. And the state needs to allow them to speak, to think, to act, to associate, to believe and ultimately really to participate in in political life because that's the moral core that liberalism is trying to protect. Hello and welcome to Why Is This Happening with me, your host, Chris Hayes. You know, I think that the Russian invasion of Ukraine for a lot of us, for I'll speak for myself, felt like a kind of historical rupture that it... It was such a seismic act and so fully tore up what felt like an old era that there was a kind of epoch basically shaped from late 1980, like in 89, 90, fall of Berlin Wall, fall of the Soviet Union to the invasion, 30-year period that was kind of like basically to oversimplify, right? Post-Cold War ideological competition between capitalism and communism as alternate systems, globalization, the integration of more and more countries into what we call the global economy. And I should note for both good and ill, we can get into that because it had positive effects and and crushingly negative effects. And a rise in the number of nations that were essentially either in reality or at the very least aspirationally liberal democracies. And that 30-year period was a strange one in many ways, and in some ways quite anomalous. And one of the people, I think, who best foresaw that period and understood it was a thinker-philosopher named Francis Fukuyama. You probably know his name. He's authored many books. He's He's a very acclaimed scholar. He wrote this book, actually in 1992 it was published, but it was based on an essay that had actually been written earlier called The End of History and the Last Man. Now, I remember reading this book when I was, I think, in high school. And it's a sort of famous, infamous, and misunderstood book. Partly infamous because the title is like, oh, history's over and nothing will ever happen after this. And, you know, after 9-11 and all these other events, people would say, oh, how ridiculous that we thought we were living in the end of history. But that's not really the book's argument at all. In fact, the book's argument is much more sophisticated than that, in some ways, much more provocative. And I'm going to risk summarizing it here because we're about to talk to the author who might correct me. But basically, if I had to say the tweet-length version was, it wasn't that nothing else is going to happen. It was, this is as good as it gets, basically. (laughs) That in a sort of teleological sense, in terms of the development of human forms of ordered liberty and flourishing— that we were sort of evolving towards liberal democracy and liberal democracy with its inherent contradictions and all the different tugs and pulls and conflicts that come with normal politics was still just about the best system we developed and maybe the best we could ever develop for self-governance, for the ordering of human affairs. And that didn't mean that that was nothing else was going to happen after that. It meant that we had evolved to this sort of point at which there was nothing better than what we had. That was also extremely controversial for a whole variety of reasons. And what we saw, I would say, starting probably around 2013, 2014, we started to see a real backsliding in this kind of what seemed at one point inexorable growth of liberal democracy throughout the world. More human rights, more self-determination, more flourishing of people as democratic citizens of their nations, and more authoritarian backslidings for nations that had been formerly ostensibly democratic, becoming more and more one party, incumbents rigging the rules of the game so as to stay in power, um, rollbacks on press freedoms, rollbacks on religious liberties. Of course, Donald Trump then is elected in the United States in 2016, despite losing by three million votes the popular vote. Brexit is another sort of big moment in watching this kind of retrenchment, this reactionary backlash to the, the kind of spread of liberal democracy. 
And now we find ourselves in this moment that feels like that era is done. Like the <laughs> the kind of end of history, post-Cold War, neoliberal globalization moment is done. We're in some new era, post-COVID, post-Brexit, post-Trump, post the Russian invasion of Ukraine, in which various forms of authoritarianism are both on the rise. And I would say in the case of China, have a credible claim to be like a competitive alternative to the Western model, if we're going to call it that. And so I thought it would be an amazing time to talk to Professor Fukuyama, particularly because he has a new book out precisely on this. I mean, sort of reflecting on exactly this set of themes and topics called Liberalism and Its Discontents, which is out this May. So Professor Fukuyama, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks very much for having me, Chris. I'm a longtime admirer of your writing and your thinking. Let me start with your gloss on End of History and the Last Man for people that don't know the book or who are, who are new to sort of thinking about this topic. Well, I actually thought you did a pretty good job <laughs> in uh, summarizing the, you know, the real argument. The book is really about history with a capital H, meaning, you know, what we would call development or modernization. You know, it's the gradual evolution of human societies. The one slight correction I'd make is that I didn't assert that I knew that liberal democracy was the best possible system. It was a little bit more modest. I said that I don't see an alternative system out there that really lays claim to being superior as a way of promoting human flourishing and human happiness. And I do admit that China has been probably the most serious contender as an alternative because They've managed to grow very rapidly. They've been pretty stable. I think that there are many other aspects of human flourishing, like individual freedom, that they don't permit, which is why I wouldn't say that it's a superior system. But, you know, it is a pretty powerful one. And our system right now looks pretty troubled. So, you know, it does look like we've got some competition at the moment. I actually went back to the book this summer when I was writing about the Russian emigre philosopher Alexander Koyev who was a Hegel scholar and taught a seminar on Hegel's phenomenology of spirit in Paris that was attended by some of the most influential thinkers of the, the 20th century. Koyev would then go on to be a bureaucrat in the French Ministry of Trade, where he was actually instrumental in constructing the early precursor of the European Union through the European Common Market and putting in place a lot of the kind of bureaucratic mechanisms that would draw Europe closer to each other in the wake of the, the disaster of the Second World War. Just talk a little bit about the basic Hegelian, I mean, not to get too <laughs> philosophical too quickly, but the basic Hegelian argument about telos and, and human development, because I think it's both embedded in the way we think of history, but we don't actually sure. recognize it as such, right? We just, we think of history as a kind of march of progress, almost as a kind of like fact about what history is, but it's actually, that grows from specific philosophical presuppositions and, and traditions. Right, right. So Hegel was the first so-called historicist philosopher, meaning that in his view, what people thought, the way they behaved, the kind of institutions they had was relative to the historical period that they were living in. But he believed that that passage of history wasn't just a random series of events or it wasn't cyclical like prior philosophers had thought, but it was progressive. And so over time, mankind developed you know, different forms of living, different values, different institutions, but we were progressing towards the kind of realization of a basic human freedom. And Alexandre Kojev, the philosopher that you referred to, did teach this seminar in which he, I think, slightly tongue-in-cheek, repeated Hegel's assertion that history ended with the Battle of Jena in 1806 when the Prussian army was defeated by Napoleon. What did that mean? Well, it meant that Napoleon was the bearer of the French Revolution, the liberalism of the French Revolution. The Code Napoleon is the basis of law in and the rule of law throughout Europe today. And, you know, I think what he was arguing was, despite all the Sturm und Drang of historical, you know, events since that time, we hadn't really evolved past that liberal understanding of liberty and equality as the basic underlying principles of a modern society. And that was what I was thinking, you know, that obviously a lot happened, you know, wars and revolutions and so forth. There was an attempt to add another stage because Karl Marx succeeded Hegel and 
Marx said, no, no, the end of history is not liberal democracy. It is communism. And so then for the next 150 years, there's a big struggle as, you know, people on the left tried to build a communist society. And all that came crashing down in 1989 with the fall of the wall and the reforms that were going on in the Soviet Union. And it became pretty clear that that higher stage of history was never going to arrive. And to the extent that there was an end of history, it was what we were seeing around us in existing liberal democracies. And so that's you know, that was basically the argument that I made back then. And I still think it's true in the sense that I don't see a higher alternative out there that is particularly attractive. Yeah, I mean, it's always difficult, right? Because we are subject to the same historicist forces that all humans are, right? We're, we have contingent knowledge based on the institutional arrangements and the horizons that we experience. And so it's very hard for us to float up, right? And, and sort of view in this like deeply, you know, almost omniscient comparative sense. It is worthwhile, though, just to linger on this notion of progress as as central, because I do think like it's so, particularly I think the listeners to this podcast, right? You know, most of human history, you know, we're on the planet for 200,000 years. Like hmm. we get civilization, maybe 10,000, 12,000, somewhere around there, you know, what we think of as civilization or at least just, you know, domesticating animals, staying in the same place, starting to urbanize and build denser societies. They begin to have social layers. You know, most of it's not progressive. Like, it's cyclical, right? Like the drought season comes, the rainy season comes. You know, you you sow and then you reap and then you <laughs> go through the winter. Nothing changes year after year. So our experience of progress, both as a first person lived experience, but also as a philosophical premise for how we think about things progressing. And you're seeing this now, right? With people's reaction to the row overturning. That that feels to people like myself, we're firm believers in abortion rights, like history turning backwards, right? This idea that like right. it's supposed to go in this direction and now it's going backwards in that direction. But even that presupposition is it's not necessarily like the true way the world works. It's it's a philosophical tradition. Right. No, that's right. I think that the idea of progress had both a material and a moral component. Right, exactly. The material one, obviously, was that modern societies get richer and, you know, that allows us to live longer. Our children survive out of childhood we have more opportunities, you know, to have more fulfilling lives and so forth. The moral side of it, you know, I do think has to do with the question of equality, because all of those earlier ages that you referred to were oftentimes deeply unequal societies in which, you know, there was slavery, there was racism, there was uh, certainly gender, you know, uh, women were assigned subordinate gender roles and the like. And the kind of history that I think Hegel was talking about really had to do not just with the material progress, but the moral progress in which people would be recognized for their fundamental human equality. And, you know, I think any sensible historicist understands that this is not a straightforward linear progress where we make a little bit of progress every year and we never go backwards. So you think about the history of the 20th century, you had the rise of Stalinism and Hitlerism two massive world wars that, you know, virtually destroyed European civilization. And yet, at the end of that, you know, the defeat of Nazism is what laid the ground for decolonization. So all of the, you know, developing countries that were held in colonial captivity by Europe got their freedom. They became independent, could determine their own futures. And, you know, you think about what happened in this country, you know, at, at the time of the ratification of the Constitution, the only people that could vote were a very small circle of white males that owned property. And that progressively widened, you know, with the ending of slavery and the Civil War, the juridical equality of African-Americans, then with the 19th Amendment of women. Of course, again, we see massive setbacks. So after 1876, you know, the readmission of the Southern states means that the United States then has to tolerate Jim Crow and legal segregation, and it takes another hundred years to get rid of that. But, you know, that's the way history operates, I think. It's not linear, but in the end, there is this kind of moral progress. And so that's really, I think, the underlying idea, you know, in that historical or historicist narrative. 
So let's talk about liberalism, which is the subject of your latest book, but also I think the through line of a lot of the thinking here, right? Because I mean, the notion of moral progress and liberalism are always sort of bound to each other. And the, you know, the project of liberalism is to produce a kind of balance between liberty and equality that allows for maximum amount of human flourishing, but, you know, retains some sort of bonds to each other to avoid the kind of winner-take-all ethos of politics that are controlled by, say, one party, right? Where if you seize control of the of the state, then you get to dictate every aspect of life. And that obviously has real losers if you're on the wrong side right. of that. How would you think about liberalism in the broad sense that you're talking about it here? Yeah, so in the United States, it's associated with a certain kind of left-wing politics. And that's not the sense I mean it, because I think that the way that, you know, progressive politics has evolved in the U.S. has actually turned it rather illiberal in many respects. My view of liberalism is also not the right-wing version where a lot of people think of it as libertarianism. You know, they don't like the state and they want to get the state out of the economy and out of people's social lives and so forth. And that's also not the version I believe in. You know, my version begins with a philosophical premise that all human beings are basically morally equal, you know, that they have an underlying dignity and that that dignity needs to be respected by governments. And the way that it is respected is through a rule of law, through constitutional arrangements that put limitations on the power of the state to, you know, manipulate individuals. And, you know, the state needs to allow them to speak to think, to act, to associate, to believe, and ultimately really to participate in, in political life because that's the moral core that liberalism is trying to protect. It's that autonomy and that ability to decide things on your own that is the, you know, the moral basis for the doctrine. So that means that liberalism is, you know, I would say that Sweden and Denmark, you know, two social democratic states that tax more than 50% of GDP right. are liberal societies yes. because they fundamentally, you know, obey the, the rule of law. And on the other hand, there are definite threats to liberalism right now because, you know, both Vladimir Putin in Russia and Viktor Orban in Hungary, you know, have said that they're trying to build an illiberal society. Yeah, let's talk about the threats to liberalism because, I mean, I think that the idea, for a long time when you talk about, particularly when you walk back to the the sort of intellectual organs here, right? That obviously Marx, he's a Hegel scholar. He takes much of his basic framework from Hegel. But, you know, the dialectical progress of history with a thesis, antithesis, a synthesis, right? A sort of set of institutional arrangements, a backlash or reaction to that, a sort of new set of institutional arrangements that come in their stead. And he grafts on this, you know, Hegel saw this as actually a spiritual, I mean, when he talks about phenomenology of spirit, of like the actually like spirit, like capital S spirit of capital H history, you know, moving through humans. He was he was definitely not a materialist. Marx takes that and he talks about it in material terms. He's where the engine for him is class struggle, control of the means of production. And out of that grows, you know, this global battle in both rhetorical, ideological, military, and institutional senses between liberal democracies, which range across right and left, right, in our concept, and socialist states, right? Right. Self-described ones. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, we have something different now, which is that there's this, we don't have a Cold War. There's no unified ideological threat or argument, right, like there was between you know, Nixon and Khrushchev when they, <laughs> when they met at the, you know, the World's Fair back in whatever it was. Like, how do you think about the threats to liberalism now, the alternatives, the arguments against it? Well, uh, it's uh, interesting because there are arguments on both the right and the left uh, for why liberalism is, they regard as not adequate. The right-wing arguments, you know, in a way come out of the essence of liberalism because liberalism first appeared as a way of governing over religiously diverse societies. After the European wars of religion in the middle of the 17th century, Europe was completely exhausted. And the early liberal thinkers said, well, let's lower the horizons of politics. Yes. You know, no longer will the state set a religious objective or define the good life in religious terms. We're going to rather have a tolerant society where people following different religious views can live together in peace. And 
you know, that means that liberal societies, you know, you can do whatever you want, provided that you don't prevent other people from doing what they want. And I think a lot of conservatives feel that that allows, you know, a lot of moral laxity. People don't accept the kinds of values, particularly in, you know, areas regarding family, sexual behavior, and so forth, that religion had, you know, typically tried to define and constrain. And nationalists feel that liberal society doesn't give an entire people a common cultural framework. They don't have the same traditions and views. And, you know, they feel that that's a weakening of, you know, social solidarity as they see it. And those, you know, critiques are true enough. But, you know, the reason that liberalism existed was because in the days when people did pursue either these religious or national goals, they got into a lot of trouble because they wouldn't agree on them and they'd end up, you know, with a lot of violence. So that's the critique on the right. The critique on the left has to do with the slowness oftentimes of liberal polities to actually address social justice problems. And so, you know, that history that I was referring to where, you know, you you create juridical equality for African-Americans right after the Civil War, but 100 years later, you still have a situation where a black person can't walk on the streets of the nation's capital because of legal segregation. And it takes, you know, 100 years really to actually fulfill the promise of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments. That's a long time, you know, so I think that it's quite understandable that progressive people that want the equal treatment of all people think that liberalism is hypocritical, it's slow, it doesn't actually move fast enough. And so I think that's kind of the origins of the unhappiness on both sides. You know, my answer to that, well, Maybe we should put off the answers, but I think that's that defines the problem. Well, let's put off the answer for a second. I mean, I think there's a, there's another aspect to this that I find really fascinating for me, particularly with my own, whatever my own history is, is that arguments that are formally similar to arguments that I grew up with among the left are now employed by the right, particularly the populist right. So there's a certain kind of left argument against liberalism, you know, Marx's concept of bourgeois democracy, which is basically that you say that you have these facially, that basically this is a facially neutral and value neutral system in which you're not really picking winners and losers and you're sort of just balancing competing interests and allowing for tolerance, but really you're smuggling a huge amount of like actual substantive contentions in, wielding of power in Marx's, you know, conception on, on behalf of the, the capitalist and ownership class. Now you get it from right-wingers that basically like, you guys say you're all neutral and tolerant, but really what you're doing is like, you've seized control of the commanding heights of both the state and culture to essentially create your winner-take-all regime in which people have to listen to your, you know, what you like. And it's interesting because it's, there's almost a kind of postmodern aspect to it or even throwback Marxist aspect to it that is in some ways similar to the, the left critiques of my youth that you see a lot of people oh, absolutely. On, on the populist right using now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I have a whole chapter in my new book about how structuralism evolved into post-structuralism, then post-modernism, and then finally into critical theory. And, you know, the argument was first for a kind of radical subjectivism, you know, that people imposed uh, a structure on reality by speaking about it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, words were very important. But those words were controlled by powerful elites. And oftentimes, those elites would use language itself to manipulate people but the people wouldn't being manipulated wouldn't realize that they were being manipulated. So the thinker that was the most prominent in this line of thought was Michel Foucault, the yes. French um, you know, philosopher who had this idea of biopower where he said, you know, in the old days, a ruler could just order the death of any one of his subjects and, and use power directly. But in the modern world, it's much more subtle than that. They hide behind things like modern science to declare certain people, you know, insane or deviant or to incarcerate them. But in fact, this is just an exercise of, you know, pure power. And so it's actually a kind of conspiracy or theorizing that there are these elites that are manipulating people. And you're right that that's exactly what's gone over to the right now. So you think about the COVID epidemic or the kind of anti-vaxxers who make an identical argument. They say, you know, Anthony Fauci, you know, Centers for Disease Control, these are not neutral scientific organizations or people. They're actually 
being used by the elites to take away your freedoms because what they're interested in is power. And that is, that's Foucault to a T. <laughs> you know, whether uh, anybody on the right actually has read Foucault, I don't know, but they've certainly adopted, you know, the structure of his argument and the kind of conspiratorial thinking that lies behind it. Yeah, I mean, Ross Douthat had an interesting column about the right's sort of appropriation of Foucault. I think you can make the argument that Foucault always has reactionary strains in his thinking from the beginning. And there are parts of his politics, there's a very fascinating and famous Foucault-Chomsky debate in which some of this comes out. There's also the fact that, you know, Foucault is a fairly enthusiastic supporter of the 1979 Iranian revolution, which, again, there was reasons to want to see the Shah overthrown, but was quite enthusiastic about the Ayatollah, actually, and like the yeah, bad regime in yeah. the early part. So there's, there's some interesting, I think there's always been kind of a latent, if not explicit, reactionary aspect to it. But yes, this idea of the mechanisms of liberalism essentially being disingenuous, right? right? That basically it's bad faith, that essentially there's a whole bunch of yeah. fancy words and technologies and a vocabulary of law that is all essentially just the cloaking of power, raw power, that's not right. that different than right. other powerful regimes. And we just like to justify it in all sorts of fancy ways. No, that's right. I think the different branches of critical theory have different versions of it. So you know, there's a branch of feminist thought that says that liberalism is just a modern version of patriarchy yep. that, again, hides the power of men over women. Critical race theory has a similar view. Post-colonial theory, you know, actually levels the charge that liberalism is actually all about the subjugation of, you know, non-European peoples. In fact, to its core, right? I mean, that, the, yeah, and there's, that's right. there's plausible, I mean, these are, I think, quite in many ways, even if I'm ultimately persuaded by them, but they draw a lot of blood, I think. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, in my view, a lot of that is guilt by association mm -hmm. in the sense that, yes, it was liberal Britain that colonized the world, you know, mm -hmm. in the 19th century and developed the largest colonial empire, you know, the world has ever seen. And that was hypocritical if liberalism aims to treat people, you know, as autonomous, equal, moral individuals. But the question I would raise is, did that colonization drive stem from liberalism itself, or was it actually in contradiction to those liberal principles? Or, you know, what I think is, is really the effective historical truth is that, you know, who we regard as an equal individual has just been changing over time. And so, you know, for centuries, women, you know, people of different you know, racial backgrounds, people of different religious faiths were not regarded as equal moral individuals, but, you know, were regarded as inferior in some way and that there was a hierarchy. Well, by white liberals, obviously not by them. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, in other societies, you know, it could have been the Chinese versus Malays. I right, mean, there was right. a lot of other, of you know, ways that people had of discriminating against other people, but that this was, you know, in contradiction to that. Right fundamental liberal premise. And I think that's something that Abraham Lincoln understood before the Civil War because he, you know, in his argument with Stephen Douglas about slavery said, you know, no, there's this prior principle that all men are created equal that's in our Declaration of Independence. And, you know, if you don't believe that, I mean, you know, that has to be the dominant principle underlying our Republican form of government. So I think that you know, it's a contradiction of liberalism and not the essence of liberalism to, you know, to practice this kind of unjust domination. We'll be right back after we take this quick break. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders-Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. 
Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. What is your account of why liberalism is seems to be somewhat in retreat slash, you know, under attack in the last five or 10 years, particularly? Well, I think that it really has to do with liberalism being carried to extremes and therefore being deformed. So on the right, you have the emergence of neoliberalism. You know, this is the University of Chicago, free market economics, then applied to public policy everywhere that creates this globalized world that produces a lot of social disruption, you know, jobs being shipped overseas, communities being undermined, and ultimately the financial system becoming very unstable. On the left, you have the growth of identity politics. There's a liberal version of identity politics where it's simply marginalized groups that are mobilizing around their identity to, you know, say, we want we want to be treated equally as people in the mainstream. But there was also an illiberal version of it that began to say, well, actually, these differences based on race or ethnicity or gender, sexual orientation, these are actually essential characteristics. And you liberals that think that we're all equal individuals are wrong. We're not all equal. We all have such different life experiences. They're really not commensurate. And you shouldn't treat us as individuals. You should treat us you know, primarily as members of these groups. And you know, things like resource distribution or jobs or other things should be distributed on the basis of our group characteristics rather than, you know, what we are as individuals. And, you know, that then becomes an attack on the broader liberal principle of equality. So the pluralism is no longer a pluralism of individuals, but a pluralism of, you know, well-established and kind of fixed social groups. I'm not quite sure I'm with you that people are making that argument. So on the on the sort of neoliberalism side, I basically agree. But on the sort of quote-unquote identity politics, it just seems to me like there's a kind of inevitable tension that you're identifying is a tension that's just inescapable in any form of liberalism, right? So, you know, the sort of group identity, group recognition versus individual recognition is a complex question, right? Whether it's Quebecois folks in Canada or it's religious minorities in country like, say, India, or even in early liberal regimes in, you know, in Germany or things like this. Like, this question of how much do I identify as part of this group versus an individual, it doesn't strike me that there's many Americans making, like, what seems to me you're saying people are making a kind of ontological argument that, like, the difference between these groups is a fundamental truth about the world, as opposed to a contingent fact about how society has been ordered. And in order to respond to it, then you have to respond sort of like with like in that way. Yeah, I, I think sometimes it's a little bit hard to distinguish which of those things is happening. But certainly in a lot of critical theory, you can you can find plenty of people that say, you know, the very principle of individual equality, the equality of universal equality of individuals is fundamentally wrong and fundamentally the right. source of problems because that's what blinds you to the fact that group identity is really, you know, is very, really, really fundamental. And there's other illiberal things that come out of that way of thinking. I mean, you know, tolerance and freedom of speech, you know, are undermined because of the overriding need to meet these social justice objectives. And in fact, in certain quarters, even bringing up the, you know, the liberal principle of freedom of speech is regarded as a kind of conservative, reactionary, you know, idea, because in the current political world, there are certain ideas that are just clearly right. And, you know, people questioning them don't really have the right to, you know, to articulate alternative viewpoints. So I think those forms of illiberalism really do exist. Yeah, I, I guess I think they do. I mean, I, I guess the one thing I would say here is that, and, and again, I think I'm more probably more sympathetic to these kind of critical 
arguments of liberalism perhaps than you are. But I do think like when we get back to the freedom of speech question, and I agree, like there really has been, I think, a tangible change in how people, particularly on the left, think of that concept. I mean, I it definitely is the case that this was the notion of freedom of speech as a left liberal idea, particularly in the Bush years or the years of my youth, was much more central than it is now, where I think its political valence almost has kind of changed just in terms of how people think about it. So I, I don't I don't disagree there. I mean, I guess I think that once again, you end up in this territory where it is this critique that basically the contention is, right, that we have a kind of like ostensibly facially neutral freedom of speech, which, you know, no viewpoint discrimination, all views welcome, mm-hmm. right? But in practice, institutionally, that's not what happens, right? Like, you know, avowed neo-Nazis don't get invited to campus, right? More or less. I mean, it really just doesn't happen, mm-hmm. right? So then then the question becomes, well, everyone's drawing the line somewhere. <laughs> so once we start drawing the line, like who has the power to who draw that line? Which again, I'm I'm sympathetic to that as a sort of interesting debate. But it also seems to me to get to one of the points, I think, about liberalism, which is that it contains internal contradictions that are unresolvable, right? Like this battle between these sorts of questions are not resolvable within liberalism itself, except through the process of civil society, right? Like nonviolent argumentation, protest, resolution, whatever. There's no Bible. I'm not sure that there's not ways of thinking your way through what is acceptable and what is not. I mean, if you have a liberal society, you need to set rules, Mm -hmm. you know, that it can't undermine itself. And so if people's speech, you know, promotes violence, this is the shouting fire in a crowded theater doctrine, right, in, in First Amendment law in the United States, that's beyond the pale. But short of that, you know, uh, speech is protected. I think the problem that we face right now is not that we don't know how to draw lines, but we have a big problem about who should draw the line. Mm -hmm. And also Mm -hmm. the consequences of not drawing lines, I think, are big right now because, you know, in my view, the real problem in speech is not that people express really terrible points of view. It's that Modern digital technology has created this ability to amplify certain ideas enormously and send them all around the world in, you know, nanoseconds. And that power really didn't exist before. And, you know, the control over that power shouldn't be in the hands of governments, but it also shouldn't be in the hands of private companies, for-profit companies either. And so I think that's the real problem. It's not that we don't know how to, you know, and in in fact, we do draw all sorts of lines, you know, on social media, explicit pornography, violence, you know, people being tortured. You can't show that stuff. And everybody kind of agrees that there's a limit to speech there. It's in the realm of political speech that we have this really big problem of what's acceptable or not. And my view is, you know, we ought to accept also, you know, anti-vaxxers. I mean, these people are, are, are free to express those opinions. What's not such a great thing is when a technology platform or a government or, you know, just a legacy media organization amplifies, you know, these views and makes them, you know, much bigger than they they really deserve to be. Yeah, I mean, it's the difference between the Hyde Park Speaker's Corner, right? Famously, the famous example of, you know, unfettered free speech in, in, in London Hyde Park, where you can go and say anything and like the BBC turning over 15 minutes to anyone for any view to rock out. Right. Like, they would right. never do that, right? But that's what we have now, ostensibly, right? That there's a sort of collapsing yeah. between those two those two speech spheres. So you, you sort of outlined what you see as sort of intellectual, cultural challenges to liberalism from left and right. But my question to you is like, why now? This is a thing that I feel like I never get a good handle on. I mean, my personal theory, which I will offer— I think a lot has to do with just historical memory. In the same way when you talk about the sort of early forms of continental European liberalism grow out of the kind of winner-take-all bloodshed of the religious wars that happened particularly in the, you know, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. And that's very much informing, like Hobbes, for instance, when he's writing about Leviathan, that, you know, the historical memory of what non-liberal regimes, particularly fascism, looked like, and the bloodshed and horror they brought about has faded as people have died from the generation that experienced it. And I think a huge part of it is just that, simple as that, that like 
People didn't live through the Great War. They didn't live through World War II. They didn't live through fascism. They didn't, like, that historical memory has faded. And, and with it, people's appreciation of how precious any kind of enduring liberal civil peace is as a form of human life on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly, that would be exactly my explanation for the timing. You know, you think about a country like Poland that suffered, you know, enormously during the 20th century invasion being uh, basically partitioned between the Soviet Union and Germany, then communism, you know, that made Poles in the immediate post-Cold War era desperately eager to join the European Union and to become a liberal society. But now you've got, you know, young Poles, the vast majority of people in the country were born after the collapse of communism there, and they don't have any memory of that, you know, either the conflict or you know, what communism was like, the dictatorship that their parents or grandparents' generation suffered. And so, therefore, they can sort of think that, well, it's the EU that's really the dictator. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's really the organization that's taking away our freedoms. And similarly, in the United States, I mean, we never went through anything like Poland did. But I do think that, you know, peace and prosperity, in a way, breeds its own form of complacency. And that's partly, you know, this is where we started the conversation. That's why the invasion of Ukraine was such a shock to everybody living in the peaceful Western world, because in our lifetimes, we've never witnessed one country just launching a, you know, big military invasion across an international border and trying to conquer another country. Well, Iraq, I mean. Well, Iraq, well, but. <laughs> I mean, they weren't neighboring, yeah, okay. but it, it's the, <laughs> the closest. Yeah, that's, that's true. The closest that's analog. True. I mean, it, it felt to me as I watched the run-up to it, actually, the closest analog, just in terms of back in 2003, thinking like, don't do this. Well, yeah. This is a terrible idea. But, but yes. And, uh, well, I, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to defend the Iraq war. I think that was a huge mistake and probably what, you know, the biggest mistake that we've made in American foreign policy precisely because, you know, it kind of desensitized people to, you know, how terrible it yes. is when one country invades exactly. another. And I think to your point, though, I mean, the, the shock of a sheer total war of conquest and aggression across a land border in the heart of Europe, of one country to another, again, in the part of the world that it's the site of some of the most extended barbarism in human history. You know, I had Timothy Snyder on the podcast, and he talks about particularly that area, right? That what Stalin and Hitler in turn, just in short succession, did right, to right. that particular part of the world. It does seem to me, and to get back to Poland, right? So Poland's an interesting example where you have the Law and Justice Party, you know, ascendant and currently the controlling party. They're, they're a right-wing party. They are not quite as sort of avowedly anti-liberal as Orban is, but in that area, right? right? Mm -hmm. Particularly on LGBT rights, but other things as well. And- They've been kind of bullies in power and in ways somewhat similar mm -hmm, to Orban. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because they've also been incredibly, it has seemed to clarify things for them, for the Polish government, and the, yes. and about the stakes here and about what like the liberal or non-liberal choices really look like when you put them on the table. Mm -hmm. Well, I frankly think that's been true for the whole of Europe. Yeah. I mean, you look at the Germans, you know, the Germans were living in the world that started with Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik, where, you know, the only people that were historically guilty of anything were themselves, you know, were the Germans because they had created Nazism and invaded Russia, and that they constantly had to expiate, not just by developing friendly ties with Russia, but by not having a serious military, not stepping up to any responsibilities within NATO and so forth. And I think, I mean, the generation that really believed that were older people that had lived through the end of the war and then, you know, the kind of expiation that Germany had to go through because of the Holocaust. But, you know, they were now woken up to the fact that, you know, they're not the only bad actors, you know, that the real fascists now in the world are the Russians, uh, and whatever they did in the past, you've still got to deal with this current problem. And so I think that's why you've seen this revolution in German foreign policy that started, you know, with the invasion of Ukraine. How lasting do you think this is? It's been wild to watch this play out. I mean, we, we live in a very short attention span <laughs> universe, and that's something that I'm actually working on a much longer writing project on about right now. But I wonder how much you feel like this invasion marks some sort of hinge point about 
whatever the next era is after the, as I started in the intro, the sort of end of history era, the kind of, to me, what it feels like now is after a lot of denial (laughs) about whether there were challenges to liberalism, a lot of sort of, I think, blithe triumphalism about its inexorable spread, there is a much more acute awareness that liberalism is one of different alternatives on the table right now, and that there is an actual explicit battle being waged, in this case, militarily, but also ideologically, economically, politically over these different competing models. No, I think that's right. I think there was a great deal of complacency in this view that peace and prosperity was something that could be had, you know, without any sacrifice and without people actually even having to think about alternatives. And I think the invasion has really pierced that complacency. Whether we'll go back to being complacent, you know, if the war winds down rapidly, uh, we'll have to see. I think, you know, the images are pretty graphic. But the other thing to note is that, you know, the reaction of horror is really only true in other democratic countries. It's true in Europe, in North America, Japan, South Korea, you know, places that are democratic. But there are large parts of the world that actually haven't been outraged, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, India, all of these places, you know, are just, they're acting on the basis of national interest and they don't regard this as a big clash of values, you know, where they have to take a side. I mean, especially India, you know, has never regarded the fact that it's democratic as much of a definition of how it's, you know, sees the world. And it certainly hasn't supported Ukraine, you know, because of support for a fellow democracy. So, I think we have to realize that you know, there's a big part of the world that actually doesn't see things the way we're seeing it. We'll be right back after we take this quick break. What is the one most important thing our society needs? That would be harsher punishment for parole violators, Stan. And world peace. Uh... Okay, we get it. World peace might seem like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. It's interesting you bring up India because when you talk about alternative models, right? I mean, I think that, you know, China is the most obvious. It's the elf in the room we should talk about in a little bit because it does seem to me like it has a self-awareness increasingly under Xi of itself as an alternative model. It's sort of outward-facing rhetoric has grown more sharp on that point, particularly under Xi, who is just much more, runs a state that is much more pugilistic rhetorically about the world and about, you know— But India as well. I mean, India represents, you know, the world's largest democracy is a billion people, but is under Narendra Modi, again, increasingly an illiberal democracy. And I don't think Modi sort of speaks quite in the terms that Orban does, but the actual institutions of Indian liberalism, you know, we've had Rana Ayub on the program, like are being really pretty attacked. I mean, (laughs) quite quite intensely about the Gandhian vision of, you know, pluralism, multi-ethnic, multi-confessional democracy among equal citizens being converted into a a sort of BJP Hindustani vision of, yeah. No, that's right. And also, I think the United States has been very reluctant to criticize India for any of this because, you know, we regard India as a critical ally against China. And so we are really soft-pedaling the stuff going on in Kashmir and, you know, taking rights away from, you know, Muslim citizens of uh, India, uh, all of that stuff. 
And that's why people, in a way, here don't perceive that backsliding to be nearly as serious as I think it, it really is. Yes, I agree with that. And I think it's actually wildly worrying, also because it keeps being ratified by majorities, right? That it is both sort of illiberal, it has, you know, it has, it has produced, I think, a lot of real peril and misery, for particularly for Muslim minority in India, but also because it has... It's very popular. I mean, it keeps being ratified by the majority there. And then there's China. I mean, how do you think about China? Do you think, do you see a world in which China becomes a kind of 21st century version of what the sort of Soviet empire or or, or communism was? Uh, Well, it's certainly going to be the major alternative out there. In a way, it's going to be much more durable than the former Soviet Union because they're economically much more sophisticated and, and successful. Soviet Union never really was at the forefront of anything but nuclear technology and weapons. You know, China really has a much more broadly based economy and they've managed it, you know, amazingly well and it is socially stable. I guess the one thing you would say about China is that the social model that they represent does not seem to be wildly popular. You know, a lot of People in developing countries, for example, admire them because they're economically successful and they're growing. But do people want to leave, you know, Nigeria or, you know, Kenya and move to India because, you know, they think it's such a, a great society? No, they, they, they want to go to Europe or to North America because, you know, I do think that the way of life of a liberal society still remains much more attractive to people. But I guess the other thing to say about China right now that's particularly evident as a result of the pandemic is that they also have a somewhat lesser version of the Russian problem, right? That Russia invaded Ukraine because of the paranoia and misperceptions of one man who is really unconstrained by institutions. Uh, That's Vladimir Putin. And in a certain sense, China is pursuing what I think is a kind of crazy zero COVID strategy because their supreme leader, you know, is so committed to suppressing this disease that, you know, he's letting the 25 million residents of Shanghai, you know, suffer in the economy and everything else. And so I think it kind of shows that there are reasons why it's a good thing to have checks and balances in a political system that is the you know, that's that's what liberalism is all about, ultimately. You know, it's, it's institutional constraints on a single person's ability to make decisions and impose policies. And I think in both Russia and China, you're seeing playing out the bad consequences of, you know, that kind of decision-making process. So we'll have to see, uh, you know, long-term, whether that registers with people. And I mean, I think in terms of Russia... I'm almost sure it will, because who wants to be Putin, you know? Who wants to be a leader that's both brutal, but also ineffective and ultimately shown to be very weak? You know, that's not going to be an attractive model. China is a little bit more challenging because they're much more cautious. Uh, They're not risk takers like Putin, and, you know, they're willing to bide their time. And so that may be a much more dangerous in the long run alternative. Well, there's also the the, the sort of you know, I think that the fall of the Berlin Wall and the and the collapse of the Soviet regime two years later give a little bit of a false sense of, I mean, that's such a touchstone for so many people, right? Like the wall falls without a shot firing. The Soviet Union dissipates without ultimately a shot firing, even though there's a, there's a coup and it ultimately is unsuccessful. In quick succession, like dominoes, the various republics declare their independence, they reconstitute. And then very quickly, you start to have war, right? Chechnya, there's two wars in Chechnya mm-hmm. uh, almost immediately, right? In fact, the first one starts under Yeltsin about what will be tolerated and not tolerated in terms of independence and and, and separation mm-hmm. from Russia. That said, the vision of the kind of, you know, the Velvet Revolution, as the Czech Revolution is called, Václav Havel, that that's a model or that's like how these, how history changes is, incredibly anomalous, right? Usually force and guns and military. So there's something when you go, again, go back one generation earlier to World War II, where fascism is defeated outright through lots of bombs and guns and tanks and death. That, you know, Timothy Snyder made this point about, like, the actual military outcome in Ukraine is going to matter a huge amount. Like, who kills more Mm -hmm. people? Mm -hmm. Like, who kills who better? Right. Which yeah. which agents mm-hmm. of violence are m- more effective? Right. <laughs> because we right. tend to think of these as battles of ideas. But in the end, 
who who's doing more killing, who who has better military yeah. operations ends up mattering a ton too, if not dispositively. Well, power remains, you know, a very powerful force yeah. and ideas that aren't backed by power tend to be weaker ideas. That doesn't mean necessarily that might makes right, but you know, it, it is true that success based on things like the successful application of military power really do help bolster people's belief in a certain set of ideas. So I think that's correct. But that's why I think the defeat of Vladimir Putin may be, you know, quite an important event because, you know, if you've got a strong man whose really only claim to legitimacy is the fact that he's a strong man and then proves to be weak and incompetent, you know, who needs that? And I think that may go a long way to discrediting Putinism, you know, itself. What is your view of the U.S.? I mean, we haven't touched it as much. Um, we've been talking about this all in international context. And obviously, I talk a lot on my program and my podcast about democratic decline in the U.S. To me, it's, you know, incredibly perilous and urgent. How do you feel about it? No, I agree. I agree. I, I think that we're in a a dangerous period of the sort we really haven't experienced since, you know, the period before the Civil War, where you actually have a group of people in the political system that they've basically broken with democracy. You know, they're actually willing to overturn the results of a legitimate election in order to stay in power. And they're coming to see, you know, our institutions simply in instrumental terms as you know, ways of getting and keeping power rather yes. than as, you know, things that are independently valuable. Foucauldian fictions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, essentially pretextual means of control by the other side, yeah. the other team that wants to suppress the, you know, the real Vogue and the real the real Americans. And I think you also have this real, you know, one of the, the themes, and you wrestle with this throughout the book and throughout your work about you know, who's a real American, who's a real Russian. I mean, obviously when you talk about like immigrating to China, right? Like, well, part of the reason you don't want to go to China is because, you know, China is an ethno-national state in which the Han Chinese are the sort of centerpiece of of them. It's a multi-ethnic state for sure, but it's obvious like who's on top of the pecking order and and it's it it has no real pretenses to being, you know, multiracial and and, and pluralistic. I mean right. it sort of does in its official rhetoric, actually, I should say. It does have pretenses to that. But the sort of question of the sort of nationalist challenge, right? Which is that like a real American looks like this or the, what a real Russian is or what a real, what a real Indian is in, in Modi's India. Like that's, that's where the kind of beating heart of this challenge to liberalism lies. And it certainly is what has real potent force, I think, in the U.S. Yeah, I think uh, that's right. It's a form of community that people really look to. You know, in my view, one of the mistakes that liberals have made in many places, beginning with the United States, is not to recognize the power of the nation as an anchor for liberalism itself. The people don't believe in liberalism just as an abstraction. They believe in it embedded in a particular nation, which is their own. And I think that, you know, you need a sense of national identity that is liberal, that people can actually rally around. You know, many liberals, they don't like this idea because you know, liberalism itself asserts the universal equality of rights uh, of all people in all places. And to say that, you know, there's a border here and we're going to enforce rights on this side of the border, but we're not on the other side, you know, really rankles a lot of people the wrong way. And, you know, you can see why that's the case, but I think it's something that is necessary because you can't build a world order if, first of all, one country thinks that it can enforce rights, you know, universally. But, you know, the more important issue, I think, is that emotionally people will become attached to liberal ideas if it is embedded in their own country, in their own society. If you look at Ukraine right now, you're getting this unbelievable participation and national unity and heroism and risk of life, not for an abstraction, you know, but for a Ukraine that is different from, you know, from Russia, that, you know, there's an argument about whether they're fighting for sovereignty or whether they actually care about democracy. And I think that's kind of a false dichotomy because, you know, they're fighting for a Ukraine that is democratic and that's, you know, the way they understand their society. And if it wasn't embedded in this idea of Ukraine, you know, they wouldn't fight for it. 
Francis Fukuyama is a senior fellow at Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. He's the director of the Ford Dorsey Masters in International Policy. He's the author of uh, numerous books, including Liberalism and Its Discontents, which is out this May. Professor Fukuyama, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much for having me, Chris. Once again, great thanks to Professor Fukuyama for that fascinating discussion. I learned a lot from it. You can always tweet us with the hashtag withpod, email withpod at gmail.com. And we have a new way to interact with withpod. Are you ready for this? Be sure to follow us on TikTok by searching for withpod. Yes, we have come to TikTok. We are going to be doing so many clever, faddish dances to random clips Uh, Maybe I'll do some quick cooking videos. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be coming. So check us out on TikTok. Why Is This Happening is presented by MSNBC and NBC News, produced by Donnie Holloway, Tiffany Champion, and Brendan O'Melia, engineered by Bob Mallory, and featuring music by Eddie Cooper. You can see more of our work, including links to things we mentioned here, by going to NBCNews.com slash Why Is This Happening.